I encourage you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. We looked at the first seven verses last week, considering the relationship between husbands and wives and how we are called to show our faith in the way that we relate to our spouses. This morning, we intend to look together at verses 8 through 12 of this chapter, verses 8 through 12, as God calls us to apply that humility of the faith as Christians to all whom we meet in every situation. The Apostle writes, starting in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord, it's good for us to remember how clearly and unambiguously the Apostle emphasized to us at the start of his letter that our hope rests entirely and only in our God. At the very start of this letter, We were told that we were chosen by God the Father, sanctified or made holy through the Spirit, and cleansed by the blood of Christ. We were born anew unto hope, says verse 3, through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And verse 5 of chapter 1 says that we whom He saved, He also preserves in salvation. Time and again, the first two chapters of 1 Peter emphasizes that our hope of eternal life rests not in us or in what we do, but in the triune God and what He accomplishes for us. It's good for us to remember that because our passage this morning speaks of our obligation, our requirement as God's people to live in a particular way. If He had not given us that clear and unambiguous declaration early on that all our hope rests in the Lord, we might be tempted to think that how we behave, how we live, is what holds us in hope. But like Galatians 3 reminded us, it's not by the law, it's not by what we do, by what we accomplish that we're saved, it's by what Christ has done, right? But having said that, the Lord wants us to see that how we live matters, He loved us too much to leave us in the sin that would fill us with misery. He loved us too much to leave us in the selflessness or selfishness and the the ugliness of our sin. Having saved us, he adopts us as his own, and now he wants us to reflect the image of our Heavenly Father. And that, really, that's what we find in this chapter, or in this this text, 
the Lord wants us to reflect the image of our Father, which is perfectly revealed in the life of His only begotten Son, Jesus. Jesus lived a life of perfect holiness. Jesus lived a life of perfect selflessness. Jesus lived a life that blessed all of those whom He met, whom He confronted. And that's what we're to embrace. So our theme this morning is quite simply that God calls His children, that's us, He calls His children to cultivate a life of Christ-like blessing of others. And we see that, first of all, not in so much in what we do, but in what we desire. He wants us to set our hearts on the Christ-like attitudes of blessing. Notice how our text begins with the word finally, indicating that it's the conclusion of a longer section, or really a subsection. Starting in verse 11, we went from, who are you, right? What's your identity in Christ, to how now should you behave? And really, from that point on, we've been talking about our behavior, our uh, interaction with the people around us. We saw how we should behave toward the authorities who are over us, toward the masters whom God sets over us, how wives should behave toward their husbands and husbands toward their wives. And now he's wrapping up that section about how we are to behave toward those around us. And he gives us this instruction, it's, it's for all of us, not just for for those who have masters set over them as slaves or servants, not just for wives regarding their husbands or husbands regarding their wives. All of you, he says, men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, all Christians are called to embrace the attitudes that he sets forward right here. And he starts out with these five attitudes in verse 8. Now they're arranged in a particular way that we sometimes find in the Bible called chiasm. Chiasm is a, a way of describing a, a kind of a, po, a poetic organization of a listing of, of a series that's shaped like an X, a chi. Uh, what that means is the first and the last elements correspond, the second and the four, or second and the next to last, and all the way down to the middle, and that's where the emphasis lies. So that's how he, he wrote this section in verse 8. That's how we're going to consider it. Here are the attitudes, he says, that I want you to cultivate. Have unity of mind, first of all. That refers to the oneness of belief that we should share as Christians. Now, that's not necessarily saying that our thoughts should be utterly uniform, right? Each of us is different in the, the strengths that we have. Each of us is different in the amount of understanding that we have. We might have different preferences. So we're not uniform, but we should, be, we should have unity because we're Christians. We serve one God. We have one hope. We have God's word as the source of all truth. And that should give us a unity of mind, especially concerning the essential things. We should, well, that's why we have the, the three forms of unity, right? The three forms of unity, kids, you understand the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession of Faith, the Canons of Dort. Those don't cover all the things that the Bible teaches us. They don't cover all the things that we encounter in life, but they cover all the things on which we ought to have unity of mind. 
right? Because they're the essential things. Who God is, what he has done, how we relate to him, how we're to live before him, what we hope for in the future. On these things, we ought to have unity of mind. But we can only have unity of mind if, the last thing we see in this list, we have a humble mind. The Greek word there literally is loving-minded, being disposed towards selflessly loving others, aiming to think of others higher than we think of ourselves. That's what that word implies, a loving attitude that puts others first and us last. That loving disposition of the believer is essential if we're to have unity of mind because we won't be willing to learn from one another. We won't be willing to admit that we might be wrong. We won't be willing to grow in our understanding unless we love our brothers and sisters in the Lord, trusting them to help us grow, desiring their good enough to help them grow. So this, this is the first set of attitudes that we're to cultivate, a love for one another that will cultivate a unity with one another. And then we need to learn to give our hearts to each other. The second element here is sympathy. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy. The Greek word there means a suffering, literally means suffering alongside of. It's a willingness to stand alongside of one who suffers, joining them in their suffering. Think of Romans 12, verse 15. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That stands parallel to the fourth element. Have a tender heart. That speaks of having a tenderness, having a sympathy, having a a compassion that flows from deep within. We're to cultivate an attitude of truly caring for one another. You know, sometimes in our culture... We greet each other by saying, hey, how are you doing? But usually people don't really mean that, do they? You want an interesting experiment when somebody says, how are you doing? Say, well, you know, when I got up this morning, my back was a little bit sore. And, uh, you know, it, it started to straighten out a little bit. But, boy, I got a lot on my plate today. And Start telling them how you're doing. You'll find out they really didn't, didn't care. <laughs> they were just... They were just talking on the surface. But God wants us to really care. He wants us to actually care how our brothers and sisters are doing, especially in the church, especially among His people. He wants us to go up to each other and say, how are you doing and mean it? How has your week been? How is your marriage going? How are you doing with those teenagers of yours? Has work been okay for you lately? Have you been dealing with those aches and pains that that I've been dealing with? He wants us to really care for each other because only if we really care for each other can we have that sympathy that allows us to, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Only if we truly care about each other will we enter into each other's joy and each other's suffering and thereby strengthen and bless and build up one another. And all of that... All of that draws us together to that central attitude we're to cultivate, which is brotherly love. Brotherly love. Not just love, but brotherly love. The kind of love 
that sticks with a person come thick or thin. The kind of love that doesn't just celebrate with the one who's throwing a party, but also sits by their bedside when they have COVID. Or walks alongside of them when everyone else is mad at them. Or lovingly holds them accountable when they've fallen into sin. Or doesn't give up on them when they've fallen into sin again. Brotherly love is that love that doesn't give up. That doesn't look down on. That doesn't abandon. The world, the world is filled with hatred. The world is filled with selfishness. The world writes off those who don't do everything that they desire. But we read in 1 John 3 verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so God wants us to love with the Christ-like love of, Christ, of, of our older brother who loved us when we hated him, who died for us when we were his enemies. See, these kind of attitudes built on that Christ-like love, these attitudes stand in stark contrast with the attitudes of the world. We see that in verse 9. Those who are separated from God, they long to repay those who have done them wrong. But we're to do the exact opposite. Do not repay evil for evil. That word evil, notice how broad that is? Doesn't specify what the other person has done. Doesn't dictate whether it's great or small. It's easy to forgive somebody when they they do something little, right? We do it all the time. But when your best friend betrays you, when the person you counted as your close friend mocks you behind your back, when the sin that they commit hurts you and the people you love deeply, well, then we want to get revenge. We want to get our pound of flesh. We want to pay them back. We want to show them how badly they hurt us. But that's not what God did to us, is it? No. We did evil upon evil upon evil against him, and he did the greatest good that could possibly be imagined, sending his son to suffer the curse of justice against our sin so that we could be reconciled to him. Instead of sending us to the death that we deserved, He did everything necessary to prepare us for eternal life. And so He says, Do not repay evil for evil. Or reviling for reviling. That's reviling, kids. That means speaking ill of. Somebody speaks ill of us. They they say something hurtful about us. What's our temptation? To say something hurtful about them. Oh yeah, well, right? But he says, don't do that. Instead, on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. On the contrary, bless. 
Because that's what God did to us. We spoke evil against Him and He spoke blessing. We did wicked things and He did what was ultimately good. And He wants us to reflect Him. Now understand, that won't gain you any applause from the world. They'll just think you're a sucker. They'll just think you're a victim. They'll think you're an easy mark. They'll, they'll maybe even take advantage of you more. But God promises, no, you'll obtain a blessing. Because when you display that selfless attitude of Christ, loving those who are unlovable, blessing those who have cursed, you reflect Christ in what you desire to those around you. Jesus suffered for those who afflicted him so that they, so that we might have life. Jesus prayed for those who mocked him that they might be forgiven. He blessed with life eternal those who had been his enemies. And God wants us to reveal him to the world around us, promising that as we do, we shall inherit a blessing. Notice that. We shall inherit a blessing. Not receive, not be repaid, but inherit. You inherit that which is yours by right as a child. And that's the key here. As we show these Christ-like attitudes, we demonstrate that we are in fact the children of God. The blessing is ours, not because we earned it, not because these selfless attitudes, these Christ-like attitudes merited it. They didn't. But when we show these attitudes, we demonstrate that we are the children of God. And so we inherit the blessing that belongs to the sons and daughters that God has brought to himself through Christ. So the question for you, my friends, is what attitudes are you cultivating in your heart of hearts? Are you cultivating the attitudes that come natural to the sinful flesh? Or are you cultivating the attitudes that belong to the children of God? If you ponder that and you say, well, I don't think I am cultivating any attitudes. Well, you are. We're all cultivating attitudes every single day that we live. If you're not thinking about it, then you're cultivating the attitudes of the world. You're cultivating the attitudes that you see on the TV or on the Internet. You're cultivating the attitudes that you find on TikTok or Facebook. You're cultivating the attitudes of the people around you at work or in the general marketplace. And those are not the attitudes of the children of God. We must intentionally and self-consciously cultivate the attitudes of the Lord. How do we do that? We do that by spending time studying His Word. Challenge yourselves. We're at the start of a new school year. We're calling our children to learn and to grow and to deepen their knowledge of God and His world. Let's challenge ourselves to do likewise. Have you ever read through the Bible in a year? If you haven't, I challenge you to do so. If you have, well then do it again. Or pick a book of the Bible and learn it Deeply, pick Romans, pick First Peter, 
Pick Ephesians and study it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, text by text, until you master it, and it masters you. Memorize Scripture so that you don't even need to open the book to know where your comfort lies, to be able to confess what God's Word says. And spend time with the people who will help you cultivate these attitudes. We have a fellowship meal. What a blessing that is. But don't let that be the only time. Please do spend time in the fellowship meal. But don't let that be the only time that you spend time with God's people. We need to be inviting one another to our homes. We need to be sitting around a campfire together. We need to be asking one another for help in our projects. We need to be influencing each other. I praise God that that we're part of a church where that happens often. That is such a blessing. But it can't happen too much. Continue allowing your fellow saints to influence you, to grow you, to challenge you, to build you up. Because as you do that, you will have set before you these attitudes. Unity of mind and a humble mind. Sympathy and a tender heart. And above all of it, crowning all of it, brotherly love. You'll be able to encourage one another. When you face those difficulties and those challenges and those offenses, you'll be able to encourage each other to not return evil for evil. And to not speak reviling toward those who revile you. But instead to bless. Demonstrating together that you are the children of God. We need to support one another. To build one another up in cultivating those attitudes of Christ. And above all else we need to pray. We need to pray that God would give us a heart for gaining his heart. That he would give us a passion for growing in the attitudes of Christ. That he would cause us to love even those who neglect us, those who scorn us, those who... We won't do it naturally. But the Holy Spirit is able to do it in us, through us, for us. He will answer that prayer because that is what he delights to do. And then having begun to cultivate those attitudes of Christ-likeness, we need to attend then to the outside. That's where Peter turns next, from attitudes to actions. And this he addresses by quoting a portion of Psalm 34. That text is quite appropriate to Peter's overall theme because the psalmist recognized, David recognized, we live in a world that is filled with suffering and pain and hardship and sin. And yet God is there with us, never letting us go, never failing us. And God calls calls us to serve Him despite the suffering that surrounds us. And so our second point is, is that God's children fill their hands with Christ-like acts of blessing. The second section, verse 10, begins with Peter defining his audience. Because you see, this isn't for mankind in general. The instruction, the direction that's found here, most people would find it foolish. Even if they didn't find it foolish, they would sincerely decline to embrace it. 
No, this is counsel. This is instruction for those who long or who love life and who desire to see good days. Those who desire to love life. Those outside of Christ, they, they usually come to see life as a burden. You get up, you go to work at a job that you don't really care about so you can earn the money so that you can forget about it for a couple days. Then you go back and you, you do the same thing. And you do all of that, saving up money, hoping for a retirement that's going to come when you're too old to enjoy it. And what comes after that? Well, darkness. Increasingly, they come to hate life because they have no hope. But we, because of Christ, we, because of the love of the Father, we, through the work of the Holy Spirit, love life and we desire good. We desire what is far better than this world. The eternal life that has been promised to us. The new heavens and the new earth where all will be perfection, where there will be no weeping, where there will be no gnashing of teeth, where there will be no sickness or disease or loss. Because Christ will imbue everything with perfect blessing. For us who desire to love life and see good days, this is how we ought to behave. This is what ought to characterize us to those who see us. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his, speak, his lips from speaking deceit. Speaking evil is such a pervasive sin, isn't it? Mankind in sin is so quick to speak that which will hurt others, that which will tear others down. Whether it's a lie or a hurtful truth, people are quick to unleash their tongue. And so Peter urges, as God's children, refrain. Silence your tongue. Don't let it utter anything that is evil. Again, notice how broad that is. Certainly don't speak that which is sinful, but also that which is true, but hurtful, or true, but malicious. We must learn to silence that which would tear down, that which would harm, that which would cut those around us. Also deceit. Our God is the God of truth, and He wants His children to delight in the truth. And that means that we put off the lie. That's essential as God's people, because we're called to tell others about Christ. But if we become known for speaking a lie. And children, please understand, you get caught in one lie and you are known for speaking a lie. But if you are known as one whose speech is not trustworthy, then when you tell others about Christ, will they believe you? Or will they say, I don't know that I trust anything that comes out of his mouth. We must refrain from speaking what is evil, or from speaking the lie, the deceit. And then Peter urges us to attend to the character of the things that we do. When tempted to do evil, he says, turn away from it. Doesn't matter what the evil is. Each of us has our own separate set of temptations. What tempts me is not what tempts you. What tempts you is not what tempts her. But whatever it is that tempts you to do evil, instead do good. God doesn't remove all temptation from his people. But he always provides a way of escape. 
So when you see that evil that you know is wrong, that you know is sin, don't simply stand there. Seek out the good that God would have you do instead. You've heard the phrase, empty hands are the devil's workshop, or idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's true. When you just stand there looking at the temptation, it's just a matter of time until you give in to it. But when you fill your hand with what is good, when you're tempted to look at that thing that you shouldn't, pick up the Bible which you know you should look at. When you're tempted to speak that word of reviling, that word of curse, instead, find something good to say. Replace evil with good. And seek peace and pursue it. Not peace as the world defines it. The world defines peace as the absence of hostility. No matter what's in your heart. No matter what you might be angling at at the end. God wants us to angle after true peace. And that's unknown in this broken world. Folks are too selfish, too proud, too filled with hatred to find true peace. But we can find it because we know the Prince of Peace. Jesus calls us to pursue true peace. Matthew 5 verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which one shall not see the Lord. We can do that only by the power of Christ working within us. What's it look like? It looks like confronting the person who has something against us and asking, what have I done wrong so that I might repent, so that we might be reconciled? It looks like going to the person who has offended you rather than just swallowing it, adding it to the list of things they've done wrong to you, going to them and in love saying, you know what? I was really hurt. Notice that. I was hurt. Not blaming. Saying, I really felt hurt when you said this or I I was offended when you did that it might be that you misunderstood what was said or done and it can all be cleared up or it might be that you've given them the opportunity to repent and your relationship can be regrown but it doesn't happen automatically you have to seek peace God went to the utmost lengths to seek peace with us. He wants us to reflect that in the way that we seek peace with others. Here's the thing, though. None of this. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. None of that is something that can be done and crossed off the list. I don't know about you, but I love crossing things off the list. That's why one of the reasons that I really enjoy doing car repairs and, and projects around the house. It's not because I'm such a, a great fix-it guy. It's just that I love taking something broken and having it fixed. Taking something that's not working and causing it to work and then being able to say it's done. Oh, that's wonderful. That is a wonderful feeling. It's done. It's fixed. But that's not this stuff. Devoting our speech to blessing instead of destroying. Devoting our deeds to good instead of evil. Devoting our passion to pursuing peace. This stuff is a lifetime project. 
the likes of which none of us will finish until Christ returns or we go to Him, one of the two. And yet we're called to strive after it daily because as we strive after this unfinishable task, we learn daily to rely not on us but on Him. We learn daily to value not ourselves but Him. And we learn to delight increasingly in the amazing character of our Savior. And God promises us when we fill our hands with Christ-like acts of blessing, He cares. He sees what we do when we strive to act in ways that, that reflect Jesus. When you, when you sit down and visit with the person at school that no one else spends time with, because they think they're weird. When you spend your day off helping that elderly neighbor who has no other help, or just drinking coffee with her. When you swallow your pride and you apologize and seek peace with somebody who's really difficult. When you do those things, God sees and He willingly listens to your prayers. Not because you earned the right to, to be heard. We could never earn that right. We could never do enough. But He hears you because God always hears the prayers of His children. And your Christ-like behavior reveals that you are, in fact, His son, His daughter. But not those who devote themselves to evil. Notice that. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These God refuses to hear because they show they are not His children. They are His enemies. They are still at odds with Him. And so when they fall to their knees in desperation because of the doctor's diagnosis... Or when they throw out a half-hearted prayer because they're about to lose their job. They have no reason to expect Him to answer. Because their whole life declares they are not His children, they are His enemies. Folks, may that never, ever be true of us. But let the deeds of our hands and the attitudes of our hearts reveal daily that we belong to the Lord, that we are His children, that Christ is our older brother, and that we reflect His image. Again, we can't do it on our own. We won't. But if we make it our prayer that God would renew us and mold us and shape us after the image of Christ, oh, He delights to answer that prayer. And He will. So I challenge you, meditate on this passage this coming week. Consider what attitudes you've been cultivating and what the deeds that you do say about you. And then fervently pray that God would draw you more and more and more into Christ-likeness in your attitudes, in your deeds, in your all. That the world might know and that God might see that you bear the character of Christ who has saved you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so thankful that you sent your Son to save us from sin. And that you've given us this calling to live in a way that reveals that we belong to you. That we are your children. Father, we desperately need your help to do it. 
And so we ask that you would work within us and that you would work through our brothers and sisters in the church to draw us more and more into this lifestyle and this character that reflects your beloved Son. And so might you be honored and glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen. In response, let's confess that we need the help that only his